Turn to Judges chapter 3, and we're going to go through verse 30. Judges chapter 3, verse 12. Remember, we did verses 1 through 11, and now we're going to do verses 12 through 30. Judges chapter 3, verses 12 through 30. You could just stand for prayer. I'm not going to read any of the verses because we're going to go through verse by verse. The title of my sermon is Tyrannicide to Kill a Tyrant. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks and we give praise to you that you have preserved your scriptures so that we might know your ways and your thoughts. And we ask, O God, that you would use this sermon for good as we look at the life of Ehud and look at the writings of Christian men down through Western civilization. We ask, O God, that you would use this sermon to continue to bring good Christian thought to men. And Lord, we just ask and pray that you help me to set forth that which you've given me to declare. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Could be seated. So let's go through here and look at Ehud. Remember verse 11 said, So the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Remember, that was Caleb's younger brother. So he was the deliverer, the first judge. He brings peace to the land for 40 years. And then verse 12 says, And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab. That's what God does. When his people live wrongly, God strengthens tyrants so that there might be repentance produced within his people, within the people of a nation. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Then he gathered to himself the people of Ammon and Amalek, went and defeated Israel, and took possession of the city of Palms. That's what Eglon did. So the children of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. They were under this oppression and tyranny. Verse 15 says, But when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. By him the children of Israel sent tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud made himself a dagger. It was double-edged and a cubit in length. In other words, it was 18 inches long. So it was pretty big. Now Ehud made himself a dagger. It was double-edged and a cubit in length and fastened it under his clothes on his right thigh. So he brought the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when he had finished presenting the tribute... Ehud had presented the tribute to Eglon. He sent away the people who had carried the tribute. But he himself, talking about Ehud, turned back from the stone images that were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. He said, Keep silence. And all who attended him went out from him. So Ehud came to him. Now he was sitting upstairs in his cool private chamber, Then he had said, I have a message from God for you. So he arose from his seat. 
So Eglon doesn't want the other people to hear. Maybe it's a little more money under the table (laughs) type of a thing. He sends everybody out of the room. It's a secret message. Ehud and Eglon are alone in the room, in the king's chambers. Verse 21, Then Ehud reached with his left hand, took the dagger from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. Even the hilt went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not draw the dagger out of his belly, and his entrails came out. Then Ehud went out through the porch and shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. When he had gone out, Eglon's servants came to look, and to their surprise, the doors of the supper, pardon me, the doors of the upper room were locked. So they said, he is probably attending to his needs in the cool chamber. In other words, he's using the bathroom. Okay, he's relieving himself. That's what's meant there. That's what they think, so they don't bother him, which gives Ehud more time to escape after assassinating the king. So they waited till they were embarrassed, and still he had not opened the doors of the upper room. Therefore, they took the key and opened them, and there was their master fallen dead on the floor. But Ehud had escaped while they delayed and passed beyond the stone images and escaped to Sarah. And it happened when he arrived that he blew the trumpet in the mountains of Ephraim and the children of Israel went down with him from the mountains and he led them. With Eglon dead, Ehud knew the Moabites would be in confusion and he needed to seize the moment. And it says in verse 28, Then he said to them, Follow me, for the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him, seized the fords of the Jordan, leading to Moab, and did not allow anyone to cross over. And at that time they killed about 10,000 men of Moab, all stout men of valor, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. So instead of just 40 years, like under Othniel, they would have rest for 80 years. So here we see Ehud kills a tyrant. The term used for this is tyrannicide, the killing of a tyrant. It is funny to read today's scholars and churchmen all perplexed about Ehud. They obviously know nothing about evil and wicked men because this passage really bothers them. They're perplexed. How could this be of God is their mindset. But that's because they don't know anything about evil and wicked men because they live in their cocoons, their ivory towers. Their soft pretend world keeps them from seeing clearly. They have no hatred of evil, so they cannot see the goodness and justice of such an act. They live in their little soft world here in America, so they love to throw stones at men like Ehud who were under the oppressive rule of an evil government, something they they can't understand. And so they try to do something with, well, what is this with Ehud? Uh, try to make excuses for God. Even though it says right there in verse 15, the Lord raised Ehud up. God doesn't need any excuses made for him. Understand. This thinking by the America's soft churchmen may soon be changing as the tyranny of the government grows and strengthens in its evil. 
They may have a little different perception because they can't live in their little pretend world anymore, separated out from everyone else, indifferent to the evils, idols, and tyrants of their land. The tyrants have already invaded their churches. They couldn't comply quickly enough, and they couldn't take the money quick enough either that the government doled out to them. The churches in America have taken $7.3 billion while they listened to the state and shut down their buildings. So not only are they traitors to Christ, they're whores. That's what that means. This morning, I want to speak briefly to you about the foremost two documents in the history of Western civilization regarding the matter of tyrannicide. The first was written by John of Salisbury in his historic work entitled Polycraticus, which every person should read and every one of my children have to read as part of their upbringing. John of Salisbury wrote Polycraticus in the year 1159 A.D., It is about government and politics. It is not political theory that he writes of, but the political reality of that time. Book 8 of Polycraticus covers tyranny, tyrants, and tyrannicide. Tyranny, tyrants, and tyrannicide. Here are some of the subtitles within that section. Wherein consists the difference between a tyrant and a true prince. Another part is, the tyrants are the ministers of God and of what a tyrant is and concerning the characters of Caligula and Nero and the death of each of them. Another segment, that by the authority of the divine page, it is a lawful and glorious thing to slay public tyrants. Another section is entitled that all tyrants come to a bad end and that God will punish them if the hand of man is wanting and that this is shown in the case of Julian the Apostate, which he has an amazing history written on, several pages long, and many examples from the sacred scriptures. So those are some of the subsections within this section dealing with tyrants, tyranny, and tyrannicide. This work by Salisbury is of great importance because Salisbury was the first of the medieval writers to address tyrannicide, to kill a tyrant. He was the first to erect tyrannicide as a doctrine and defend it with reasoned arguments. I cannot read it all to you this morning as the part on tyrannicide is 75 pages long. Yeah, I won't read it all to you. So you will have to read it yourself. And I encourage you to do so. He cites cites countless historical examples and many passages, many, many passages of Holy Scripture. So read it yourself. I hope you do. But I will make some comments about it here. Salisbury begins by talking about the differences between tyrants and true princes or kings the differences between tyrants and true princes and kings. And here's what he says to begin his work on tyranny, tyrants, and tyrannicide. He says, Wherein the prince differs from the tyrant has already been set forth above when we were reviewing Plutarch's instruction of Trajan. And the duties of the prince and of the different members of the commonwealth were also carefully explained at that point. 
Wherefore, it will be easier to make known here, and in fewer words, the opposite characteristics of the tyrant. A tyrant, then, as the philosophers have described him, is one who oppresses the people by rulership based upon force, while he who rules in accordance with the laws is a prince. So the tyrant governs through mere whim and uses the force of the state to get people to comply, whereas the true prince abides by the laws himself and upholds the laws that are, does not create them out of thin air. Salisbury goes on and says, Law is the gift of God, the model of equity, a standard of justice, a likeness of the divine will. Remember the appendix in my book on the doctrine of the lesser magistrates? The laws of a nation should mirror the law and justice of God. Salisbury says here that the law is a likeness of the divine will the guardian of well-being, a bond of union and a solidarity between peoples, a rule defining duties, a barrier against the vices and the destroyer thereof, a punishment of violence and all wrongdoing. He goes on and says, the law is assailed by force or by fraud, and as it were, either wrecked by the fury of the lion or undermined by the wiles of the serpent. In other words, men are known to corrupt the law, to misuse the law in various ways. He goes on and says, In whatever way this comes to pass, it is plain that it is the grace of God which is being assailed and that it is God himself who, in a sense, is challenged to battle. That's a powerful statement because he's right. And we are, we are God's representatives in the earth. We are his ambassadors. He goes on and says, The prince fights for the laws and the liberty of the people. The tyrant thinks nothing done unless he brings the laws to naught and reduces the people to slavery. The prince fights for the laws and the liberty of the people. The tyrant thinks nothing done unless he brings the laws to naught and reduces the people to slavery. Hence the prince is a kind of likeness of divinity, and the tyrant, on the contrary, a likeness of the boldness of the adversary, even of the wickedness of Lucifer, imitating him. Salisbury then goes on and cites a poem by a tyrant named Photinus, who he refers to as a quote-unquote monster, a quote, man famous for his foulness and cruelty, unquote. Photinus insolently states in his poem that Salisbury writes out the whole thing. He states in that poem, bragging of his tyrannies, he says, quote, The liberty to commit crimes is what preserves the power of kings, hated though they may be. Yeah. The liberty to commit crimes is what preserves the power of kings, hated though they may be. He then states, quote, to do all things cruelly does not lawfully escape punishment, save when you do them successfully. Such is his arrogance. Like the tyrants of our day, so is Photinus. Rulers often brag of their tyranny and how easily they dupe the people. 
and the people are easily duped, especially when the objective standard of God's law has been removed. They can't see tyranny for what it is when it's right in front of them. And I blame the churchmen for that because of their phony form of Christianity, their soft form of Christianity. They've refused to teach the people all that God's word has to say, which his word addresses all matters of life, including matters of civil government. Salisbury says of tyranny, for tyranny is abuse of power entrusted by God to man. For tyranny is abuse of power entrusted by God to man. He also stated in his work, Polycraticus, all power or authority is from God, for the power of God is never lost nor severed from him, talking about God, but he, God, merely exercises it through a subordinate hand. Do you want me to reread that to you? Some of you look like you do. All power is from the Lord God. The power which the prince has is therefore from God, for the power of God is never lost nor severed from him, talking about God, but he, God, merely exercises it through a subordinate hand. Salisbury, in other words, understood that the authority someone in civil government possessed was delegated authority, delegated to them from God. Hence, they are to govern according to God's rule. If they act contrary to the law and word of God, they have become tyrants and are to be resisted. As he goes on and writes, quote, Loyal shoulders should sustain the power of the ruler so long as it is exercised in subjection to God and follows his ordinances. But if it resists and opposes the divine commandments and wishes to make me share in its war against God, remember he said, when the tyrant appears, he's challenging God himself. So loyal shoulders should sustain the power of the ruler as long as they're acting in subjection to God and following his ordinance. But if it resists and opposes the divine commandments and wishes to make me share in its war against God, then with unrestrained voice I answer back that God must be preferred before any man on earth. Unquote. Amen? This is Christian thought. Salisbury writes, quote, for the will of a true ruler depends on the law of God and does not prejudice liberty. Do you understand how powerful these words are? Do you understand how badly our magistrates in America need to hear from Christian men these Christian thoughts? Massively important. The magistrates and the people of this nation must be called to repentance Salisbury says, for the will of a true ruler depends on the law of God and does not prejudice liberty. We see the law of God in this nation thrown under the bus, spurned, spit upon. It's almost as if they go to God's word, see what he has to say about a matter and do exactly the opposite. Our liberties, they have no respect for them. And because the people have forgotten God, they're willing to make the state God. They're willing to allow themselves to be ruled by brutes. And it's hard to live amongst them. As they all walk around with their masks on. While they tolerate the bloodshed and slaughter of the preborn. While they tolerate school children being taught the most base perversions of homosex. 
Salisbury cites countless historical examples of tyrants, tyranny, and tyrannicide, as well as countless passages of Scripture which speak to tyrants, tyranny, and tyrannicide, and you would do well and be enriched to read of these countless historical examples and scriptures that he sets forth. I encourage you to read his work. Salisbury then asserts, to kill a tyrant, quote, to kill a tyrant is not merely lawful, but right and just, unquote. He also states, it has always been an honorable thing to slay them if they can be curbed in no other way, unquote. So Polycraticus, written in 1159 A.D., massively important work regarding tyrannicide. The second foremost document in the history of Western civilization regarding the matter of tyrannicide is entitled, listen to me now, A Short Treatise of Political Power and of the True Obedience Which Subjects Owe to Kings and Other Civil Governors with an Exhortation to All True Natural English Men. Yeah. This was written in the 1600s. (laughs) So, yeah. The author is John Panette. Panette, like Salisbury, was from England, and like Salisbury was, among other things, a churchman. Lest you think the title here about subjecting ourselves to the kings and civil governors is the usual rank, Romans 13, 1 Peter 2 nonsense of our present day churchmen, you're wrong. It is not. It is wholly different than that. And I encourage you to read Ponet's work also. One of his chapters in his book, his treatise, is a chapter entitled, Whether It Be Lawful to Depose an Evil Governor and Kill a Tyrant. The treatise is well thought out, unless you think Ponet to be some lawless revolutionary, the other six chapters are entitled this. Chapter 1, Whereof political power groweth, wherefore it was ordained, and the right use and duty of the same. He's no anarchist. He's no lawless revolutionary. He's a churchman showing from the Word of God and from history the proper role and function of civil government and our relationship to it. Chapter 2, whether kings, princes, and other governors have an absolute power and authority over the subjects. Chapter 3, whether kings, princes, and other political governors be subject to God's laws and the positive laws of their countries. By positive laws, we simply mean not the law of God, the laws which they have established in their nation. That's all that's meant there. Chapter 4, is entitled, In What Things and How Far Subjects Are Bound to Obey Their Princes and Governors. Chapter 5 is, Whether All the Subjects' Goods Be the Emperor's or the King's Own, and That They May Lawfully Take Them as Their Own. Chapter 6, Whether It Be Lawful to Depose an Evil Governor and Kill a Tyrant. And Chapter 7, What Confidence is to Be Given to Princes and Potentates. Again, this is an important, well-thought-out treatise dealing with civil government matters, written by John Ponet. It truly is a treatise. The entire work is about 65 pages long. John Adams, one of our early presidents, said that Ponet's 
treatise was the foundation upon which the American Revolution was governed. So this is an important work. You have that? John Adams, one of our early presidents, said that Ponet's treatise was the foundation upon which the American Revolution was governed. The chapter on whether it be lawful to depose an evil governor and kill a tyrant is about ten pages long. And you can read that at our church website in the modern English. Because years ago, a dear sister in the church took it from the old English up to the modern English so that you can read what he had to say. I encourage you to read the whole work, however. Ponet begins by showing that magistrates are subject to God and are to uphold the law and word of God. Like Salisbury, he recognized that the authority civil magistrates possess is delegated authority, delegated to them from God. Ponet summarizes by stating, quote, We see from whence all political power and authority comes, that is, from God. That's where all political authority and power comes, God. It's delegated authority to those who have positions of authority within the civil realm. Ponet also understood that government officials were to therefore govern according to God's rule. He states, Therefore, seeing no king or governor is exempted from the laws, hand, and power of God, but that he ought to fear and tremble at it. Right out of Psalm 2. We may proceed to the other part of the question. That is, whether kings, princes, and other governors ought to be obedient and subject to the positive laws of their country. Panet demonstrates and concludes that they are to be subject to the law of God and to the positive laws of their nation. Unlike our governors in our day who think they are above the laws of our nation or state and can make decrees from mere whim, who think they can run roughshod over the law of God itself. Ponet quotes Trajan's giving of the sword to a subordinate and uses it to demonstrate that the lesser magistrates can resist their superior when he makes unjust, unlawful, or immoral decrees or orders. The quote from Trajan is, Use this sword against my enemies if I give righteous commands, but if I give unrighteous commands, use it against me. That is the doctrine of the lesser magistrate, That is the inner position of the lesser magistrate when the superior authority is doing evil. Panette begins his chapter on tyrannicide by describing the differences between godly rulers and tyrants. Let me find it for you here. So he describes them as Salisbury started out his work describing the differences between a tyrant and a true prince. Here's what Panette says. As there is no better nor happier commonwealth nor no greater blessing of God than where one rules if he be a good, just, and godly man, so there is none worse nor none more miserable nor greater plague of God than where one rules that is evil, unjust, and ungodly. 
A good man, knowing that he or those by whom he claims was called to such office for his virtue, neglects utterly his own pleasure and profit to see the whole state well governed and the people defended from injuries. And he bestows all his study and labor to see his office well discharged. And as a good physician earnestly seeks the health of his patient and a shipmaster the wealth and safeguard of those he has in his ship, so does a good governor seek the wealth of those he rules. And therefore the people, feeling the benefit coming by good governors, used in time past to call such good governors fathers and gave them no less honor than children owe to their parents. An evil person coming to the government of any state either by usurpation or by election or by secession, utterly neglecting the cause for which kings, princes, and other governors and commonwealths are made, that is, the wealth and good of the people, seeks only and chiefly his own profit and pleasure. And as a sow coming into a fair garden roots up all the fair and sweet flowers and wholesome simples, leaving nothing behind but her own filthy dirt, so does an evil governor subvert the laws and orders or make them to be wrenched or racked to serve his affections that they can no longer do their office. He spoils the people of their goods, either by open violence, making his ministers take it from them without payment or promising and never paying or craftily under the name of loans, benevolences, contributions and such like gaily painted words or for the fear he gets out of their possession, what they have, and never restores it. And when he has it, consumes it, not to the benefit and profit of the commonwealth, but on whores, whoremongers, dicing, carding, banking, unjust wars, and such like evils and mischiefs wherein he delights. He spoils and takes away from them their armor and harness, that they shall not be able to use any force to defend their right, and not contented to have brought them into such misery, seeks and takes all occasion to despoil them of their lives. Panat then offers historical and biblical examples of deposing tyrants and of tyrannicide. He, like Salisbury, speaks of Ehud, our text here today, in Judges 3, both he and Salisbury talk about Moses also. He killed a tyrant, remember that, in Egypt? Moses did. Understand tyrants can be at any level of government. This was like one of the lowest of the low tyrants, a taskmaster. And remember, Moses killed him. The Scriptures do not condemn Moses for doing so. In fact, in Hebrews 11.27, it states, quote, by faith, Moses forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. And that's what brought about his leaving. Both Panet and Salisbury write about Jael also, and a host of other examples from Scripture of tyrannicide. Here's what Panet says regarding what men have thought about tyrannicide down through the ages. He said this, They esteemed the deed, talking about tyrannicide, to be worthy so great reward 
that they thought him worthy of pardon that killed a tyrant. And besides this, when they saw that tyrants used to have their bodies defended with great garrisons and guards of foreign people, or kept themselves in strongholds and secret chambers, so as none without great hazard and peril might come near them, they propounded great rewards to him that should destroy a tyrant, nor thought they rewards or gifts to be sufficient recompense for so virtuous an act, but they also used to make the image of him that killed a tyrant in brass and to set it up in the most solemn place in the city for a perpetual memory of the act, the commendation of the doer and the encouragement of others to do the like. Have you ever seen the Virginia flag? Six Semper Tyrannus. There is the tyrant dead on the ground. It was an act of tyrannicide. This is what he's talking about. Men have understood that tyrants at times need to be taken down because their evil is so extensive. And men reward those who take the tyrant down. He ends this section by saying they dedicated to his praise and honor songs and verses and would have them taken by men as gods worthy of immortality. In page 13, Ponette speaks about repentance and prayer. About repentance and prayer. Salisbury also writes about repentance and prayer when tyranny is in the land. Salisbury writes, quote, For the sins of a people cause a hypocrite to reign over them. And as the book of Kings bears witness... Tyrants were brought into power over the people of Israel by the failings of the priests. Salisbury later writes, quote, For tyrants are demanded, introduced, and raised to power by sin and are excluded, blotted out, and destroyed by repentance, unquote. We need to call men to repentance. Amen. We are a nation that has forgotten God. We're drowning in our sins and our evils, and we need to repent and turn from them. We must repent. We must pray and call out to the Lord. We must humble ourselves. We must hold on to and foment holiness in our lives and in our homes. And so I say to you, brothers and sisters, cry out to the Lord. Cry out to the Lord. Laying prostrate on the floor next to your bed, cry out to the Lord. Laying upon your bed in the night watch, grieved by what you see in our nation, cry out to the Lord. Cry out to the Lord, live right by Him, be contrite in heart, that He might be glorified through your life in this dark hour. Tyrannicide by individuals developed to tyrannicide by the body politic, as is seen by the killing of Charles I in England in 1649. Though countless men have since then, and to this time around the world, have had to take the sword to oppose tyrants who invade and assault their homes and lives, 
this being done outside the body politic. There's still time for individuals to take down tyrants. Now let me close with something Salisbury referred to that we just looked at. He says that tyrants were brought into power over the people of Israel by the failings of the priests. Remember that? Just just read that a few minutes ago. Salisbury was a churchman and he concludes those ultimately responsible for tyranny in the land were the churchmen. I am a churchman and I too have long come to the same conclusion regarding America that the pulpits, the churchmen, stand most culpable and guilty for the state of our nation. Pietism abounds. The churchmen will not stand against the idols, evils, and tyrants of our day. They are indifferent to them. It doesn't matter what the evil is. The brutal slaughter of the pre-born, homosexual marriage, the perversion of homosexuals being taught to school-aged children, the churchmen are indifferent to it all. They say, you shouldn't have anything to do with politics. Even John MacArthur, who's taken a stand to keep his church open against the edicts of the state, which I thank him for, is still teaching people that they should have nothing to do with politics, and he mocks it as mere moralizing. John MacArthur did not defend the preborn. Now that they've come to his church, he's going to defend his church. That, brothers and sisters, is problematic. That's problematic. If he had encouraged his Christian people to be involved in civil government matters, the tyrant wouldn't be at the door now. But because they were indifferent to the preborn, and allowed that injustice, now injustice has come to them. Yet still, the churchmen have no repentance. John MacArthur was, you know, the one who tyrannized at his behalf. The elders of Grace Community told Bob Vernon back in 1989 to go ahead and tyrannize the Christians interposing at the door of the abortion clinic. Two Christian women lost their preborn babies the brutality against them was so strong. One man had his arm broken. One Christian sister who was a master pianist could never play the piano again. Such was the brutality, and that's just some of the brutality suffered by those there that day. They forget about the preborn, allow the injustice to go on to them. And now the injustice has come to their house, the house of the Lord, their church. Now they're going to take a stand against the tyranny of the government, yet they still don't take a stand on behalf of the preborn. They still don't take a stand against the evil of sodomy. They still don't take a stand within the civil government realm against the evil of homosexual marriage or children being taught such perversion as being normal. It's an awful thing to watch. John MacArthur his church took over a million dollars of the money that the churches have taken since this all began in March. 
7.3 billion the churches have taken. Tens of thousands of churches have taken the money and closed their doors. Taken their money from the government, obeyed the government, closed their doors and took the money. Because they got the money if their doors were closed. That's evil. John MacArthur says, yeah, we got the money, but we gave it back. Listen to me. When he says that he got the money, he says right in the interview that it just showed up at the church, that their church must have been on a list, and that his church got it. The truth of the matter is, the Christian legal groups went out and taught churchmen how to get the free money from the government. I know, I'm a churchman. I have many screenshots of them grabbing the churchmen and teaching them how to get the free money. No one just sends you the money from the government. You have to apply for it. It's a long, drawn-out process, and sometimes you need an attorney to help you with it. So when he says it just showed up, and we must have been on a list, he's not telling the truth. And so I wonder if he actually sent it back. Because I know a little something about sending back a million plus dollars to the federal government. I know what it's like sending back a thousand dollars to them. Because I've helped people who wanted to send money back to the government that got a check in the mail that they didn't want. And it took seven to eight months for the government to take it back. And in some cases, they never took it back. They don't send you a check for a million and some dollars and you just put it in the return envelope and send it back to them. You do understand that, right? This is the type of evil I'm talking about. And there's something wrong with the Christianity that is okay with evil being unleashed in every quarter against the preborn, the perversion of sodomy, their businessmen having by the force of law, to comply with these evil laws, and the churchmen always get a pass. Always. I was in Iowa on Monday. The Republican governor there, while I was there on Monday, decreed a bunch of new draconian orders regarding this whole COVID thing. But guess what? She exempted the churches. And you know what the churchmen all do? Woohoo! We're exempted while everyone else is tyrannized. It's wicked. And I have no stomach for it. When Christian men and Christianity abandons the realm of civil government, wicked men are going to fill the void and make their worldview, law, policy, and court opinion, and they have. It's precisely this awful form of Christianity that foments tyranny. Just as Salisbury said here, tyrants were brought into power over the people of Israel by the failings of the priests. And it's the same in our day. The churchmen have failed from their pulpits, whores that they are, traitors to Christ that they are. It's interesting when you look at Salisbury, he not only addresses temporal tyrants or civil tyrants, but he also addresses eternal tyrants or ecclesiastical tyrants. In fact, he spends about eight pages in his part on tyrannicide 
talking about the tyranny of the churchmen of his day, which seems to not have changed in our day. I want to read to you just a small scintilla part of it so you can get a taste for what he had to say. And I hope it encourages you to read his work. Here's what he says. To outward appearance, a hireling, remember he's talking about ecclesiastical tyranny, the churchman. Remember, he is a churchman himself. To outward appearance, a hireling feeds the sheep, but because he does all things for a price, when he beholds the wolf rushing toward him, he leaves the sheep and flies, being not a shepherd but a hireling, and caring not for the sheep but for his pay, even as a dumb watchdog that cannot bark to frighten off the approaching wolf by his outcry and clamor, but fears him who snatches away his means of living and does not stay to await him who will torture his soul in Gehenna. Verily, he is blind to the larger things and shuns all things which are not objects of property. If this does not define the American churchman, I don't know what does. He goes on and he says, Of such men it is written, Woe unto the foolish prophets that follow their own spirit and see nothing. Like foxes in the deserts are they prophets, O Israel. Ye have not gone up to face the enemy, neither have ye built a wall before the house of Israel that you might stand fast in battle in the day of the Lord. These churchmen know nothing of facing the enemy. They are indifferent to any of these matters I speak to you of this morning. They think it foolish that I'm standing up here talking of them. And their little world is going to come crashing down upon them because Christ will purify his bride. He will reform his church and he will use persecution and judgment to accomplish it. These whores won't hardly touch it. They're like the official church in China that can still exist because they'll aid and abet the tyrants in anything they need to. Like the whores that were in Hitler's Germany, like the whores that were in Stalin's Russia. That's the kind of churchmen we have here in America. They will do everything and anything to keep their little moose club going and comply with the state, to keep their people on their little religious hamster wheel to nowhere, thinking they're doing something important for God while they're doing nothing. Look what he says after he quotes this passage out of Ezekiel, where he says, "...ye have not gone up to face the enemy." Neither have ye built a wall before the house of Israel that ye might stand fast in battle in the day of the Lord. Oh no, they're indifferent to it all. Salisbury then goes on and says, For there is no spirit of liberty or independence in them to lift up their voices against the powers of the world. No valor to protect the truth in time of danger. In all things it is payment which they seek. In none or in but few do they seek the salvation of souls. So long as they prosper in their own concerns, so long as they realize the objects of their ambition and avarice, they hold in small account the loss of the things of Jesus Christ. Let there be peace in their times. Let the sheep be prolific. 
The beeves fat, the storehouses full. Let the table loaded with meat and drink dazzle the admiring eyes of the beholders. Let the elaborate finery of all manner of curious and costly furnishings abound. Let them be reverenced and fawned upon by the crowd of sycophants. Let them grow rich and be visited by their subjects with presents. In short, give them liberty and impunity to do without blame whatever their desire dictates. And they will say to everything, capital, bravo. And thus they seem, according to the reproach of the prophet, to have daubed with mortar, unmixed with straw, the wall of hardened sin, which by the precept of God was to have been undermined, to the end that it might fall, and the worst abominations vanish from the house of the Lord. And he is right. He is right. They have no spirit of liberty or independence in them to lift up their voices against the powers of the world. No valor to protect the truth in time of danger. They are the worst of men. Salisbury goes on and says, These are the men that sow cushions and place pillows beneath the head of a whole generation to snare souls and consume the milk and clothe themselves with the wool of the sheep, which they have, as it were, led into the sleep of negligence or rashness. That's what he had to say to the churchmen of his day. Verily, he says, he is not only a thief and a brigand, but a ravenous wolf a follower of the roaring lion who goeth about seeking whom he may devour. They are instruments of the devil himself, is what he is saying. And my heart is grieved by it. When I see the best of young Christian men coming up, what those churchmen do is press them down, push them down. Make them conform to their awful form of Christianity. Belittle them. Make them feel unspiritual if they don't participate in their nonsense. In their non-Christian thinking. Which all of Christendom thinks is Christian thinking. Because they're drunk on the stupor and stupidity of their churchmen. Salisbury concludes, For if according to both human and divine law a temporal tyrant is to be destroyed, who can suppose that it is our duty to love and cherish a tyrant in the priesthood? And yet, Americans do. They'll go week after week to their sniveling, groveling little churchmen, their little soft, gentle churchmen, who are lying to them. And they like it that way. That's why Panette said, when the rulers and the people play together, they all get what they deserve, and that's what's coming upon America. It deserves it all. We're a wicked nation. Again, we must all repent. We must all pray and call out to the Lord. We must all humble ourselves. We must hold on to and foment holiness in our lives and in our homes. I say again, cry out, brothers and sisters. Cry out to the Lord. Live right by Him. Be contrite in heart that He might be glorified through your life in this hour. This masking of Americans is dehumanizing and humans 
are made in the image of God. So corrupt is this nation that we have had to write theology to teach and defend that marriage should only be between a man and a woman. And now we have to write theology to show that the masking of man is utter idiocy, and yet far worse, it is an affront to the image of God and man. We are a rebellious nation, like a rebellious nation of old. Remember God, but the mask of excrement on their faces. And that's the masking we have going on today. Christian people, under the guise of quote-unquote love, wearing the mask, spreading a lie. It is wicked to see. Americans must end this masturbation. Men must be called to repentance. Repentance is needed by all of us, by all Americans. The Lord should be honored in our private lives as well as the public realm. And it is because we have forgotten God that we are now ruled by tyrants. We must repent and cry out to the Lord. May God raise up men to fill the pulpits who love Him and love righteousness. O Lord, we call upon You to do it by the power of Your Holy Spirit. May we be true and right before You, O God, in this hour. May Christ be praised. Let's stand up and we'll close in prayer. Hallelujah, Lord. Hallelujah, Lord. Father, we give thanks and we give praise to you for your goodness to us. For your goodness to us. Lord, we just ask and pray that you would strengthen us in heart, mind, soul, and body to stand during this time to do right by you to defend our homes. Lord, each man understand he is a provider, a protector, and a priest to his home. May each woman understand she is the man's helper in every one of those duties. Lord, we give thanks and praise to you that you have redeemed us, that we're not like pagan men feeling around in the darkness. But we know you, for you have translated us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of your dear Son. May we walk as children of the light, O God. May we, O Lord, exemplify your demeanor, your behavior, follow your rule and law and word. And may we confront the idols and evils and tyrants of our day, as good Christian men and women before us have done. Keep us humble before Thee, contrite in heart, utterly dependent upon You, for You are the vine and we are the branches and we can do nothing, nothing without You, O God. Be glorified through each life here. Be glorified through each home represented here, O Lord. And I ask and pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.